Welcome to The Hidden Edge, the go-to podcast on mental fitness for business leaders and their teams by me, Jody Rogers, peak performance consultant to world-leading organizations. So Aldo, thank you so much for joining me. Tell me, where are you? Uh, where are you today? Round two. I am in quarantine again. In Where am I? I'm up in Norway, in Oslo. In three days' time, I fly up to Svalbard, so up in the Arctic Circle. It's all part of this Ocean X project. So, yes, uh, it's exciting and it's good that we're still being able to travel. But the um, you know, the quarantines, 10-day quarantine is, is a bit of a killer. Yeah, last time I spoke to you, you were in quarantine in Saudi Arabia. Saudi, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not complaining because um, I'm still getting to travel the world um doing my job in current circumstances it's you know it's it's amazing that we can still travel but um you know it's it's a huge sacrifice you know for a for a two three week trip you you sort of isolate at home for two weeks before the trip and then you you fly out then you go into quarantine for 10 days when you're there um and then you do the job um and then when you come home you're then into quarantine again for another up to 10 days so it adds a, a huge amount. It bolts a huge amount of time away from home onto trips, which are already quite long. It's crazy, isn't it? So there's a big chunk at the beginning, a chunk when you get to the country, and then a chunk when you get home of dead time. How on earth are you feeling that time? My, my whole world, because I travel with work, pretty much crashed, to, screeched to a halt um, when lockdown happened last year. So I guess that that whole time up until now actually has been writing my book, editing the book and choosing the pictures, which actually it's taken the best part of a, a year to do, you know, without me being in lockdown and all these quarantines, I just I just wouldn't have had the time or the inclination to sit down and, and to, to physically put it together. I mean, you, you did the same, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, it was actually, yeah, you're right. It would have been, it was, this time last year, I was in the middle of writing it. We weren't in an exact lockdown at that moment, but I know what you mean. You, it t- there's a certain intensity to it that requires a lot of time and thinking that we probably wouldn't have got if it wasn't for the pandemic. That's one thing we can thank it for. <laughs> I, I definitely wouldn't have have done this because I, you know, I was in South Sudan when the first lockdown happened. I, I flew back into lockdown. Had it not been for that, my year was already booked out. You know, I was I was already on back-to-back jobs up until at least Christmas time 2020. So so actually it was, you know, it forced me to to put the brakes on and just recalibrate and and sort of get back in the groove of actually what what I'm doing and what's important. Mm. Well, here, let's let's go back a step then for listeners who don't know who you are. Can you Give us just a few minutes on who's Aldo Kane, a bit about your background, who you are yeah. and what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, basically, I'm, well, how I know you is through your brother, Johnny. Um, he works in television. So at the minute, I work in television in extreme remote and hostile places. And my job effectively is keeping film crews safe in those locations. So, you know, my background is I was in the Royal Marines, joined at the age of 16 became a commando at the age of 17, and then spent the next 10 years learning how to to operate operationally 
around the world in jungles, deserts, mountains. And and so after leaving the Marines, I, I kind of eventually sort of found my way into to doing this job and, and actually my passion. And uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much what I do. So my job involves traveling a lot um, and going to some fairly extreme or wild places that making television there. <laughs> Brilliant. How long did you say you were in the Marines for? 10 years. Um, so I joined at 16, 5th of September, 1994. And then I left 10 years later. So I left the Marines after 10 years when I was 26 years old. I'm pretty, pretty lost. Bounced around, did a few things a few years before I eventually, you know, I was offshore uh, working on wind turbines and, and oil rigs and, and then eventually got into to working, doing what I do now. Right. Wow. Fantastic. Yes, you're absolutely right. I know you three. We we know each other through one person, my brother, who is in Spalberg right now as well. He was um, on the same flight as me on the way out. What are the chances? Isn't it crazy? It's crazy. And so you now put a lot of time and energy into really the safety of the teams that you work with. Isn't that right? That's right. I, you know, I'm much more hands-on sort of boots on the ground, um, you know, looking after specific technical parts of, of crew safety. For example, that could be a dive shoot or like what I'm on now is is all maritime work. You know, we're in helicopters, boats, submarines. And, and my job generally is like on this one is mission ops. You know, I'm essentially expedition leader. And 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 effectively it's managing people in in austere environments and, and looking after them. And a lot of it actually is, is just interpersonal skills. Yes, I have a, a, a background and trained in a high level of specific technical things like ropes, like diving, like bodyguarding, et cetera. But actually what my job entails much more than anything else is interpersonal skills. It's about how I talk to someone else and how me and the director and the camera person work with each other to then make something happen and be as safe as it can be. Does that sound boring? No, it, no, because you, well, you know what lights me up. And I think what's really interesting about that is it's really easy for people to default to thinking, oh, ex-Marine commando muscle and bravery, and that must be what it's all about. But you're saying something quite different. So tell, tell me a little bit more about why you think it comes down to like interpersonal skills. Well, I think that the job I do, there are many people who are much better qualified than I am on paper to do it. You know, there's much better riggers out there. There's much better divers out there. There's much better people who are, you know, who are technical in those specific areas. And there are, yeah, you're right. There's there's an assumption that comes with being an ex-Marine. But really, like if I'm being honest, that was, you know, 15 years ago or, or whatever it is. And and realistically, all of that, that, that training, you know, physical training then is is really gone. And what lies, what sticks with me is, is probably only an ethos or, or like a belief in my head of what that, what the Royal Marines and the Corps means to me and, and how that, how that affects my daily working life. So really there's an assumption that goes with that. You know, there are lots of people out there in the Marines and, and other services who I wouldn't want to work with in a million years in this industry. And, and I know there's, there's plenty of them that would be technically very good at it but just couldn't manage dealing with, for example, the media side of it. So actually my job is much more interpersonal 
is it is it skills or is it I don't know what you would call that, but it's my ability to talk and interact with someone um, is much is much more valuable to me than than the ability to put on two rucksacks and yom for ten miles, which I do and and I can do. But but you know the more valuable part to me is is that that interaction. Yeah, I mean, I just want to pick up on what you said there about. Yeah, it's 15 years ago and really all that's maybe left is the is the ethos and what it means to you. But it's very easy to downplay that. But actually, that's just as important. What you've learned from that, who you became as a result of that experience is partly shaped how and why you show up in the way that you do today. And we've talked about this before in the past, Aldo, but for those who who, who don't get to sit and have a whiskey in the bar with us and talk about these things, can you share a little bit about the, well, really what you learned from your time in the Marines? You know, I, I did 10 years. The best thing I ever did was join the Marines at the age of 16. Coming from west coast of Scotland, I... You know, I wasn't academic in any way. It didn't feel like there was a lot of opportunities for me there. And so I joined the Marines, longest infantry training in the world, I think, at the time. And, and you know, it wasn't easy. I, I literally scraped through by the skin of my teeth. But, you know, I got through and I spent the next 10 years working with some of the most professional people on the planet in, in that field. You know, looking back, what I take away from it more than anything is probably two things. It's a work ethos about how I present myself and how I work and what my values are. And the second thing is the commando spirit, which, you know, you and I have talked about before. And it's a sort of ingrained ethos, as it were, you know, that the Marines sort of instill in you and that that's courage, determination, unselfishness and cheerfulness in the face of adversity. Now, they're Four simple things, but they, you know, every day in my life, you know, they they form part of it. They're almost cornerstones of, you know, of my life and and the work that I do. But they're not ever taught specifically. Like, no one pulls up a PowerPoint projector and goes, "Today we're going to talk about courage." You know, courage is X, Y, and Z. You know, that's it's much more subtle than that. And you know, by the end of your thirty weeks training and the end of your ten year service. It's much more about the person that you've become in that time than what you've been taught, if that makes sense, or what it's taken to get you to that point. And so I think, you know, with the way I attack everyday life is it's still based on what I learned and what I was taught when I was 16. The testament, I think, which becomes obvious is when you when I go to the Commando Memorial every year in November. Spain, up in Spain Bridge uh, in November, so it's like remembrance service. And you meet guys up there that are sixty years old. They've been an accountant or whatever for the you know for thirty years, but they were in the Marines for four years, and and they, you know that that four years has still impacted the rest of their life. And I don't think there are many jobs that people do for three or four years that then impact the rest of their life. And yes, you know, there are, you know, there's dicks the same as there are in all walks of life and every other denomination of, of bad people and good people in the Marines as you have outside. But, you know, there is that general collective being part of that thing that, that was hard to achieve. And by being hard to achieve it, you know, you, you sort of, you feel privileged in a way. 
you know, it's funny you see these old guys, you know, that that still associate with being in the Marines. You know, they they, you know, that that's become part of their DNA as opposed to you know, if you were a postman for four years, you know, when you're sixty, it's not part of your DNA. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Tell tell me about what was the one there, the last one, cheerfulness in the face of adversity. That seems to you know, normal, normal people, not teacher, not normal. To the general public, that's a bit of a surprise, that one. Can you tell us a bit more about that one? What, I mean, uh, uh, when you look at these four principles of the, the, the command of spirit, you know, really they're, they're not anything new. Um, the Marines have been around for 300 odd years, you know, 1664. But before that, thousands of years before that, there was the ancient Stoics and they all had very similar they also had very similar philosophy on, you know, cheerfulness in the face of adversity, which means, you know, like Gallo's humor, when when the chips are down, it's that's when you can really tell what type of person someone is. And, you know, when someone loses their temper, they're angry, or or, or they show signs of greed or unselfish or selfishness. You know, these are and when the chips are down, that's when you really get to know who someone really is. And and I think cheerfulness in the face of adversity is, you know, yes, you know, things can get really bad. You can have a really shit time, but you can always try and find the fun part of that, of the situation, mm-hmm. see, see the funny side of it. And, you know, there's a couple of things that come from that. You, We have the ability to control the controllables. You know, we, we control what we can control, but we cannot control other people. We cannot control the weather. We cannot control the environment. You know, so you can control a tiny little part of this thing that we call life and trying to control everything else out with that would only sort of lead you to sort of madness, I would say. And so that's, you know, that all comes part of, you know, if you can't control it, then then you have to find the funny side in it because you can't change it. <laughs> yeah, no, I can definitely relate to that. I think there's something, there's definitely a... Uh, Celtic survival manual, which is very much about laughing, even in the darkest of moments. Yeah. I, I love that idea of control of controllables because at Symbia and the work that we do, uh, it's very much underpinned by mental fitness. And this idea of separating, helping people see there's things within their control and things with out of that are outside of their control and it's it's futile to really waste our time and energy on the things that are that are out of our control but most of us do it all of the time and it's partly because it's natural to to fixate on the things that we're afraid of of our worries and we haven't even got that distinction to separate what's in my control and not what's not within my control is there anything that you do in your work or as you assess, you know, situations and stuff that other people could learn to help them kind of control the control controllables? Or is it really just a mantra that you need to remember? Just to jump back to what you were saying there about what we focus on, um, that's been quite an interesting point is uh, just to use an analogy. When you learn to ride a motorbike and you go round, for example, a roundabout, the instructor will tell you to look at the road where you're going because wherever you look at, then you're going to to hit with the bike. So if you look at the tree, then you'll hit the tree. And I think, you know, with control, the controllables, we have the ability to think about, well, we can control what we think about or we can let our mind run wild. And by controlling and pointing our mind in the right direction, 
bear in mind, I'm not a psychologist. So I'm not very good at like getting these points across. But from what I've noticed, we can point our mind in the right direction. So we can, you know, we we can. It's like if I'm thinking about this bad thing all the time, that bad thing will probably happen because I've sort of steered myself towards that. But we can do the same with with a good thing, you know, with with a, a goal that you want to achieve. If you're thinking about that the whole time, then you get there. It just sort of flashed up when you mentioned that. Oh, I like that. That's great. And I'm jumping on to more to control the controllables. Yes, that you, you know, in the job that I do, for example, if I'm in a hairy situation inside a volcano that's erupting or working with narcos in South America or, it, I don't know, exploring a cave system somewhere and, and there's a flash flood, you know, I, I've got... I've got several things that I can do and there's several things that I will do and only hindsight will tell me whether I did the right thing at the right time. But for me personally, in that situation, you know, what I will try and do is, first of all, is stop. Um, and, and I guess the majority of people, there's, you know, there's a wealth of stuff written on this. The majority of people in a, in a hairy situation will uh, be in um, a denial stage for quite some time a deliberation stage for quite some time before and if at all they ever get to making a decision. You know, in the Marines, they teach you very much about you practice something over and over and over again so that when the shit hits the fan, you go straight into this muscle memory thing of of going through the actions so that your brain isn't clogged up with, oh, right, I need to get into this position and do this. That's running on autopilot while your brain takes a step back you then totally circumvent the, the deliberation stage and the denial stage and you go straight into making decisions. So for me, in a situation like we talked about, flash flood in a cave or a volcano erupting or narcos, the first thing that you need to do is assess the situation and deal with facts. So for me, you know, if, if we were just going to keep it very simple, I would say just deal with the facts. And that's often not what we do. We as as a human race, we we listen to you know we give we give people's opinions more time than we would do someone who you know was actually an expert in that subject, who's I don't know we Jean down at the laundrette who apparently knows everything about the world. You know we give them more time with their opinion of the situation rather than just dealing with facts. So for me, I deal with facts. Um, if I can and I'm in the right situation, I write it down. Right, seeing something on paper is often, you know, it's very clear. You know, you write down what the problem is and then you write down what your options are. Then you can see what you need to do. More often than not, we know what that decision is. The rest of the stuff that clouds that is probably emotion, hurting people's feelings, um, I don't know, potentially losing lives, making that calculation. So in my work, we would carry out a risk assessment. You identify the hazard. And then you identify the likelihood of that hazard happening. Is it very likely? You know, falling off a building is going to result in death. Is it likely? Is it unlikely? And, and then that's how I work out whether I can do that thing. And that's kind of, you're, you're then controlling, you know, it sounds boring, but risk assessment allows you to, to see the bigger picture, see what you need to put in place to make it safe or, or whatever your sort of scope is. And then you can you can follow that. But for me, it's about dealing with facts, not opinions, and certainly not anyone else's opinions of the facts. And and then just basically follow it through. And I control what I can control. 
it's really interesting actually because you you made me think of leaders and what this last year in particular and the one thing that I see that's not happening enough is decision making the people are avoiding making the decision between should we do this or should we do that because well it's, it's largely based on fear and a desire to spread the bets and therefore they're spreading their team's focus and everybody's trying to do everything and everything is urgent and um, at home everybody is slowly burning out and I would love to see a lot more bravery I suppose in decision making like not not overthinking the what if this doesn't work out and actually making a decision and sticking to it because we're really not seeing enough of that so I partly feel like there's something that could be learned from what you've just said. Weak men bring hard times or bring bad times and basically that comes through a lack of you know a lack of backbone really and it's not men it's people you know that that weakness in things like decision making and you know we talk and we go back to the commando spirit when they teach us about courage and when we learn about courage it's not about running out in front of a bus to you know to sacrifice your life to save a pram courage is courage in your convictions courage is doing the right thing courage is you know the mark of a person is is what he does when he thinks nobody's watching and you know that that to me is, you know, true courage. It's, you know, you're part of a team and you can see bullying going on. Do you step up or do you just become part of the crowd? Or even worse, do you say nothing? You know, true courage is, is about having courage in your own convictions. It's about believing in something and then standing up for that thing. And that's, you know, to me, that's, you know, part of decision-making process, encouraging your own conviction, going against, you know, the tide of, of yesers who are saying things just for, for whatever reason, you know, so that's, you know, that's part of it, that, that courage. And I think that's what we lack a lot, lot of the time is, is, you know, people with the ability to make proper decisions and based on, on facts. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned in terms of what you do in the Marines, that kind of training to get out of that denial and deliberation stage and to fast forward, moving into decision-making is definitely something we could all practice. I think, I'd love to bring up the topic of mental fitness and we're already talking about it in many ways, actually. And I think you've hinted at it too when you when you talk about um, what what you take with you from the commandos. It's not necessarily muscles, it's your it's your skills, your your interpersonal communication skills. And we've talked about in the past about um what mental fitness is to you and what it means to you. I'd love I'd love to share that for the audience. Yeah, I think you know the Marines, like I say, was you know it, it teaches you very specific skills to become a commando and, and do that job. But the the other things that you learn from it and and that become part of your everyday life, certainly for me, is is about training, physically training. You know whether it's in the gym or going out for a run or or staying on top of your my physical physical health. What wasn't apparent up until probably very recently for me, like I would say easily in the last five, six years, is that without mental health, you don't have physical health. Um, And that can be proven by you're having a bad time at work, you're rushing around, you're not eating properly, you're not sleeping properly, 
your relationships are starting to fail across the board. Your ability to communicate with people is failing. Your physical fitness then takes a hit because you're you're not having time to go to the gym. And then before you know it, you're standing on the edge of of a sand pit, you know, that's like this. And and those grains are sliding away. And once that goes, you're sort of, it's very difficult to get out. And I suppose I I started realizing with a few jobs that I'd done and a few sort of uh, adventures that I'd been on that, that without mental fitness, then you don't have physical fitness because you need, you know, physical fitness starts with you get out of your bed in the morning. And if you can't get out of your bed because, you know, your brain's not sort of uh, helping you, then you will never get the work done. Um, so, so as with everything in your entire life and body, it starts with an idea here and it starts with why, you know, if the why isn't planned at the time, you know, then you, you know, you're not going to do those things. So for me, that, that mental fitness, mental health is, is just as important, if not more important than the physical. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does a lot because it, uh, also, you know, the absence of the absence of illness does not equal health either, which is why it's so important for, you know, you mentioned continuously um, looking after your, your physical phys- fitness, which we know has a positive impact on your mental fitness and vice versa. Just as you said, you, you need to be in a good mental and emotional place to even have the energy to, to, to be physically fit. And you reminded me there when you were talking about standing on the side of it of the um, sand pit. Uh, I know that you talk about the um, incident pit as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's more. It's probably more just a like a way of looking at things. Um, like in, in my job, you know, when when like a fairly cataclysmic event happens in my line of work, then people get hurt. But often you can tell when you look at accidents, when you look at accident reports of things that have happened, it's very rarely, it's very rarely one big thing that happens. It's usually several small collections of errors, a collection of, of potentially like a, a wrong belief, not a wrong belief, because if you believe it, then it's, it's not wrong. But, you know, the, the way that you look at things, the way that potentially your biases tend to to push you you know there's all these things and you know we say that on top of the incident pit but but generally there's lots of different connecting parts that eventually you know if you're teetering on the edge there you know that could end up in some cataclysmic failure of a system of a person of a situation um, and it's just all these small collections of errors errors and judgment um, and you know you if you get out the other side of it that error and judgment goes down as experience and it helps you build a wealth of experience sometimes you don't get out the other side of it that doesn't build to any experience you know it's, it's you know it, it goes the other way does is that yeah. kind of what yeah but you know what do you know what's really interesting about that Aldo is uh, this idea that it's very easy for us to think the good and the bad things that happen in life are big events and actually the great and the really crap things that have happened in life not necessarily necessarily big events they're actually a culmination of lots of small decisions which is why how we think about things is so important because so many people come back and say to me oh I've always been this way and I can't change and it's too late for me but if we think about 
the incrementality of events and realize that actually it's about making small positive changes in the right direction can all ladder up to to something good. And equally, small negative uh, steps in the wrong direction can end up in something quite, I can't say the word you said, cataclysmic. Cataclysmic. That's so true. But there's, um, there's a couple of things go back to the ancient Stoics, you know, that there is, you know, that there's a quote from, from Marcus Aurelius that says something along the lines of the universe is change and life is judgment. Now, when you think about that in, in, in lots of different ways, anything that you personally have experienced or I've experienced in my life that's been bad or good, I can guarantee you it's never been the first time that it's happened on earth. So it's always happened to someone else. Someone else has had to have made that decision or not make that decision, or they've been in the same situation. What they're saying and what is quite interesting is that if you remove yourself from the situation, there's there's really good and bad. It's how you interact with that situation. We generally always have a decision that we can make. We generally always have a way out. We always have a way of making a situation better, even if, someone else has created the problem. Now, I'm not trivializing things that have happened in people's lives, you know, trauma, loss of friends and loved ones, et cetera. That stuff does happen. That is also part of life, you know, that these things happen. You know, it's, it's the only thing that you can guarantee that will happen to every single person that is listening to this or on earth ever is that they will die. So I don't know why it comes as a shock to so many people, but... You know, they, with with that, you know, it's about your, there's another one, it's about perspective. It's about your perspective of the situation. And how many times have we, you know, me personally, lost my temper about something that is so big and in my face at that time. And then two years later, two weeks later, a month later, I'm mortified with embarrassment of my lack of control about this thing that that made me, throw a plate off a wall, throw a punch, shout, you know, lose my temper. And and really, you know, that's perspective. Time gives us that perspective on all situations. On all situations, I'm talking about the worst situations that a world could possibly face. Time gives you that perspective. Not saying it's right or wrong, but it does. That viewpoint about whether something's good or bad is really comes down to your how you make your decisions and, and what's happened to you in the past, your experiences. And if you've the same two things could happen to the same two people and they look at it in a different way. And one of them will say, oh, this always happens to me. And the other one will, will not notice it because they're focused on something else. Um, you know, my car breaks down twice in one month. This always happens to me, does it? Like those words that you're saying to yourself, you need to check them and, and ask yourself, does it always happen? Out of the last three years, how many times has your car broke down? It may be three times, but, you know, on average, that's not bad. How many times have you managed to drive from A to B perfectly well? Um, so. <laughs> oh, I, I, I know very, very, very well uh, for two reasons. Personally, I know this because I used to tell myself I was a terrible driver. I'd do a 90-minute driving lesson and then I would tell my friends, I almost hit a bus and I went through, I almost went through a red light and I got to a roundabout and I didn't know how to get off and they would think oh you poor thing you're right that's awful you just need more lessons but if you replay and rethink what I had said I almost went through a red uh, uh, through a red light I didn't I didn't hit the bus 
And what are roundabouts for? But to go round and round and round. That's like that's like a massive round of applause. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the story we tell ourselves about what happens in our lives is as important. It actually more important it's than more. the thing itself. When you when you when you look at something that happened, uh, this is an interesting. It's like an interest. It was an interesting thing for me writing this book. Is that. I wrote a section in there about the road. So I rode from Portugal and Lagos, uh, Lagos in Portugal, across the Atlantic Ocean to Venezuela in a rowing boat um, with four other people. And it took us nearly two months. All right, well, let's just pause there for a second. I'm going to repeat that for the audience. In a rowing boat. In a rowing boat. <laughs> and it took us 50 days to do that. And in... in the interesting part about writing the book was I was like, I know this story and and I and I wrote the parts of the story. And 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 actually when I, I then went back to my dictaphone, which I had with me on the boat recording the actual truth, and the two stories were were, you know, they were they were roughly the same, but they were different enough that had I written one down, it would have been very different to to writing down what actually happened. And it was a good, and that was only five years ago. So it was a really good example of the stories that you we tell ourselves, how we embellish it to, I don't know, to protect the stories, to protect ourselves, to make ourselves look better, to to emphasize a point. And, and whether you're telling the same lie or the same positive thing over and over to yourself, eventually in, in the, the midst of time, you kind of lose track of what was real and what wasn't. And, and actually like you say, the stories you tell yourself are your reality. That is what happened. And that is then how we then make decisions in the future based on that thing. And whether it happened that way or didn't happen that way, that's what we're basing our, our future on. Exactly. It really is. And and that you're gonna we're gonna tell ourselves stories anyway. So let's tell ourselves the stories where we're the protagonist in our lives, not the victim in our lives. And I'd be interested that you had the two versions of the same story from yourself, which I love. Actually, you can tell us. My guess is your version of the story has benefited from positive perspective today versus how you felt in the middle of it then. Is that what happened? Yeah. And and I, you know, a lot of it, obviously, the time scales of things were compressed. How things unfolded were from my point of view and how I thought other people were thinking about the situation as opposed to actually the facts of what happened. Um, yeah. And it's it's interesting, you know, if you have a situation like, you know, we capsized mid-Atlantic at night and the five of us that were on that boat that night would have all had a very different experience, although we were in the same five feet of cold, dark water on our own. Um, That's a movie right there. That's a the, movie. And the, and, the, and the stories and the way that that, one six-hour event affected each of the five of us will be completely different. And that's like the joy of life, isn't it? Everyone is made up differently and people focus on one thing over another. But but interestingly, the same event happened to five people and five people can have a different viewpoint on it, a different timeline on it, and a different sort of, you know, the the what was important to them at the time. It, yeah. it all changes. It's, yeah. it's super interesting. It's like that you, you you come out with it with different learnings. You will be a slightly different person based on that narrative too. And you will then make slightly different decisions. It's like so 
kind of sliding doors. It's crazy. And you've just given an example how you, the same person, had <laughs> different versions of the story. Tell us a bit more about the book, Aldo. So it's Lessons from the Edge. Where I'm is it coming both, out? Haven't we both written books about the edge? I know. Isn't it brilliant? Uh, or we're just very unimaginative. I have The Hidden Edge and you have Lessons from the Edge. Yours is definitely filled with a few more adventures than mine. Although I can't help but think they would be very good companions because yours is the action and mine's is the explanation of what happens in your brain. I know. I know. <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's kind of, I'm 43 now and I've, I've got from probably 16 to now of a fairly adventurous stories and I kind of always in the back of my head thought that I would like to get them down if for no other reason than than just to have clarity when I'm an old guy sat in a nursing home somewhere if I'm privileged enough to get to that point and you know and just have something that I can remember what I've done and and so I guess I you know for years I've kept a dictaphone when I'm on when I'm on jobs like I talked about on the road there and even if it's like a 10 five minute even every night this is where I am this is what I was doing these are who were with me and this is what we did and this is what I felt like and and it gives you facts of like it's a journal um I'm yeah. not great at you know and I rarely have time to sit down and write my thoughts down but you know a dictaphone I can get them down it's quick and you know I forget about it and, and you know data is free now almost it's a really for me it's a really efficient way of getting it down so I've I just had years of these these stories from Did you listen to them all over the last I've never year? I've never listened to them until I started to write write the book which was super interesting and you know I'm listening to me being scared in, inside a volcano when it was erupting and you know I'm listening to how I'm talking the way that I'm talking you know the words I'm using but um the, the book is is really you know it's it's about my life up until now and and going through the marines and then through the various jobs and knockbacks I had before I sort of found my passion. But essentially, it's about following a passion um, and giving it everything. And these are the stories that happen along the way. And these are the things that I've personally learned along the way and tried to make it accessible for people who aren't necessarily going to put themselves in, in that line of work and in that dangerous situation so that they can get the same learnings. Because, you know, ultimately... You know, we you know we can get usable learnings from almost every situation in life. Some of them are extreme, like I've been on, but you know, every day you can learn something. So really, it was it was about that. I, I do have huge imposter syndrome, thinking who's actually going to read a book. Listen, uh, Aldo, <laughs> we all have imposter syndrome. The only people that don't have imposter syndrome are the actual imposters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's very true seriously we don't need to worry about it but of course i mean hold on a minute who's going to read a book about an ex-marine commando sniper who has been in active volcanoes who has rode from portugal to venezuela who has was in sierra leone during the epidemic Oh, no, I can't remember which one was the it. Ebola epidemic. Ebola yeah. epidemic. Who, what other big stories have you got in there? Bunker, when I was locked yes. away inside a nuclear bunker. Which kind of feels like what I'm doing right now in quarantine, except I was locked underground in the dark for a sleep experiment. Um, and it covers the the tiger approaching film that, that we made last year with Grain, where ah. I tried to expose the, I guess, the illegal tiger trade in Southeast Asia. Um, right. So it covers like, like it covers lots of ground. You know, we 
in the end, I lost probably 40% of the book because it was just a list of, and then I did this, and then I did that, and then I did that. And, it, yeah. you know, I didn't really get a chance to do a deep dive on on any of the, you know, the learnings essentially. So, yeah, we, we I've ended up sort of just like choosing the best sort of, the best trips, the best adventures, and then the, the best takeout from that. But good for you. I mean, I, I know many of those stories and I want to read the book because I want to get into the nitty gritty and I want to hear the learnings because obviously you've told the stories many times and just, you know, in your life, friends, family, etc. And the talks that we've done together. And I know that you're going to do um, a book tour as well. Has going back and thinking actively about the learnings was that different for you? Was that very easy and quick? How was that? No, I, it was. It, that was actually the best part of it because you know I've, I've just always since I was sixteen gone sort of headfirst into these adventures and not because I'm on a mission to learn about myself or you know at the time I certainly wasn't. You know I was just going full steam ahead in the direction of my passion. And learning from a young age that that I could pretty much have anything that I wanted as long as I knew what I wanted, I knew that I could get it, if that makes sense. And so it's only in, I would say, the last 10 years that I've actually been much more aware of that and, and much more mindful of the learnings of a situation. And you like when I'm, let's say I'm at the bottom of a cliff and, and there's a huge rockfall and everyone's very lucky to, to not become injured in it you know you don't sit and go oh well no the learning outcomes from this are x y and z you know you get on with the expedition you sort your stuff out you may be another three weeks on you know in the field and and then you come home and and then you have you know you you i have the the sort of it's not crash but it's um you know it's, it's very much a, a sort of like you relax um because you're back and then that's when you start to process the things that have happened and and then try and get some sort of learnings out of them some things that happen are just you know they're, they're fairly epic but there's, there's no learnings from it really you know you're just it's just a really mental thing. story <laughs> a mental thing that happened in a really good story um, <laughs> well I hope you kept some of those in along with all of the the, the better wiser <laughs> greater yeah. learning ones well I've, I've no doubt you must crash when you come back because you need to be given your role in those expeditions, you need you're on high alert most of the time. Even if you don't have adrenaline and cortisol going through your body, you still are just on. So that must be quite exhausting from a physiological like, point of view. A couple of years ago, Foxy and I, friend and I, went out and did a series where we were working with not working with, but we were making a film about uh, narcos, drug lords, hitmen, sicarios. And and we did a month in Colombia, a month in Mexico, and a month in uh, Peru. Mm-hmm. And we were working, filming with the bad guys for the entire time. I say bad guys, but the ones that the police don't, you know, like. From day to day, you know, we're living in a hotel. You know, we're we're in Sinaloa or somewhere that's that's equally as uh, like that. And you know, you come out and you're doing your things, and you know, day to day, it might not necessarily be that um in your face but there's an underlying current through the entire thing that one mistake and you'll be dead like there is no getting away from that and and that does take its toll you know and and when you come back from a trip like that 
or you come back from being inside a volcano or doing a world first in the high Arctic or whatever these things are, you know, even after the row coming back from, from doing that, you know, I, I had quite a big slump after that. And it was only after the row that I then realized that, you know, we, I push, 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 you get on the expedition, you're on the expedition, push, 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 push. And then, you, you know, you give it everything you're all physically, mentally, emotionally. And then there's a hard stop. There's always a hard stop in my job. And some of them are two weeks in, some of them are three weeks in, some of them are after two months. I just got back off doing um, a two-month Ocean X trip in Azores where I was diving every day in submarines down to a thousand meters, helicopters, collecting tags, working with whales. And, you know, and then you come back to your house and it's a hard stop. And it's, you know, it's, I, know I now know how to deal with that. But, you know, before it was like I was narky, I was tired I was I, you know I just I wasn't training and and actually what that is is exactly that you know it's it's the it's the post achieve your goal now what yeah. fall off a cliff the hangover is that yeah how, how do you deal with that do you do you just sleep for two days and then I, try and start again I no no the main thing is is that I know it's going to happen um, that helps yeah that helps so it's so a knowing that I'm coming back and like my wife Anna will know that for two days I'm going to be pretty useless. You know, I'm I'm there in person. You know, we just had our first kid, Atlas, a couple of months ago, and you know I missed his birth. I was on expedition, yeah. and 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 I you know and I come back and you know the first couple of days just of going through the emotions. You've usually had you know two or three days worth of traveling. Um, we've had a lot of COVID protocols that we've gone through. Um, we've got a lot of kit that we're moving around and 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 then you're slowly starting to relax and then get back into, you know, where you're in a state of non-panic, not panic, but you know, you're you're not on edge. So yeah, so so from so knowing about it for me is like the first thing. And then the second thing I try and do is, is deal with it, is to now process everything that I've done instead of just like burying it and going up like what's next. So I'll have a couple of days where I just don't do anything. You know, like I'll hoover. I love hoovering. You know, like, and, and, I, and that just like, it just zones me out. And, you know, like that might do that. And I'll clean the house top to toe, even though it doesn't need it. But these are my things now that I do when I get back, I decompress, like declutter. And uh, it's funny, like it, it makes it makes a big difference, you know, I you know, and then I settle back into normal life. Because you think, you know, you're, you know, you're going from a, a world first expedition down a whitewater canyon in Bhutan and then two days later you're like sat in the garden then you're going to do the big shop like <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like it's worlds apart and it is the real life you know the real life is the big shop is being at home is that the other stuff that we do is isn't real life you know it's, it's yeah. very privileged side of things so it's just a, a I think for me it's just an awareness that that does happen and and you know when that happens the best things that you can do are go and have a pint with mates talk about it you know have a drink with your wife talk about it talk to everyone about the job what you did what you felt and then gradually over the next few days you know I get back into training hard physically because usually I've you know I've been pretty battered physically on on these expeditions so I have a few days rest and then I get back and then I get into routine, actually routine and discipline are what the two things that I get back into. Mm-hmm. I don't get back and, and, you know, I have a couple of days off and then I set myself, you know, I get up early on an alarm. I do stuff. I have like a plan for the day and that's, that's just the way that I am. 
Yeah, that's that's smart. Give yourself 48 hours to kind of recharge and process and then make sure that you've got some sort of discipline in your day. Yeah, that's great. So look, wrapping up, people are going to be interested in the book. When's coming out and where can people get it? It comes out on September 30th um, and it's on... Have you finished it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just it's just being final edit. So I just did my final proof and it's getting its final proof this week. All the legal bits are done. So it'll be September 30th. It launches and it's called Lessons from the Edge. Fantastic. That sounded like a proper advert. I know you did it really well. <laughs> You've been practicing. Listen, thank you so much for your time today, Aldo. It's always a pleasure chatting to you. And I look forward to having you back on the podcast again in the future. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Hidden Edge. Remember to subscribe and review and visit symbiotepartners.com for the latest on mental fitness for leaders and their teams.